0: Hey crew, before we get started today, I wanted to beg you, plead with you to please take our survey. Our parent company, Just Enough Trope, is starting an internet radio station and we need your advice, we need your likes, your dislikes, do you like me, check yes or no on what you would be looking for out of your internet radio solution, up to and including... The I don't listen to internet radio. We need to know that as well. So please go to our survey. There's a link for it in the show notes. You can also find it on the EIST POD Twitter feed. Uh, just take it. It's less than two minutes. It's 10 questions. It's very easy. It gives us an idea of what you would be looking for in terms of what you listen to for podcasts, what you listen to for music as well. Uh, popular music, old timey music, new timey music, whatever those kids are into. We want to hear what you're into. So let Let us know about that. Also, big news. Big news just today. CBS and Viacom finally did it. They're tying the knot and everything should be wrapped up, I don't know, this winter as far as the merger goes. Uh, We reported on this before and hasn't uh, been a thing for a while since, uh, of course, the big news was Len... Les, Les, Les Moonves out at CBS. So, yeah, now we're getting back into that. Sherry Redstone is promising 500 million dollars in synergy savings. That means layoffs. But like I said, we will talk about all of that on our next supplemental show next week. So come back for news about that and news from the Trek world. Our show today so fun. I talked with Liz and Annika of the Antimatter Pod. Uh, about all kinds of stuff but nominally we talked about the TNG episode CEREC yeah it's two TNGs in a row but come on what do you, you like TNG what are you going to do so uh, listen up to that you can follow us like I said on Twitter or on Facebook also at EISTPOD Facebook group patreon.com forward slash EIST pod all the usual stuff take the survey take it take that survey your captain commands you and with that let's get underway it's
1: worked so far but we're not out yet
0: I want to know what you're thinking Mailing frequencies open and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, aka Caliban, and I'd be overjoyed to have my listeners, Vulcan or no, describe this podcast as satisfactory. I'm joined on this episode by Annika Dane and Liz Barr, the hosts of AntiMatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast about fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace. Annika and Liz, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you.
0: Great to have you here. Permission to come aboard granted. Today we'll be talking about Sarek, the 23rd episode of the third season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Star Trek The Next Generation had its work cut out for it in the fall of 1987, revive an esoteric yet underappreciated brand with a limited appeal while making it distinct from the original while producing an ambitious science fiction show on a limited budget and debuting to possible obscurity and ignominy in direct syndication. No problem, make it so. But TNG, despite its early setbacks and its dogged determination to stand apart from the original series, would succeed and go on to eclipse in many ways the accomplishments of its forebear, thanks in no small part to the contributions of many original series' key players, not the least of which was Gene Roddenberry himself, a man whose spark of inspiration in 1966 had been fanned into a flame of creativity by screenwriters, actors, and authors over the two decades since the show's debut, and a man who, like Sarek, would be forced to drop the reins of his creation and entrust the success and vision of Star Trek to future generations. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Annika and Liz, I always ask new guests to the show about their backstories. How did you become Star Trek fans? Annika?
1: So I, my first experience with Star Trek um, was the... Uh, Original series episode, Balance of Terror, okay, (laughs) which I saw as a six or seven-year-old child. Yeah. Um, And it was live on stage. Really? Uh, Yes. My father was a theater professor, and one of his uh, intrepid students decided that directing Star Trek would be his thesis. And so he did that. And my father was like, this is weird. I'll bring my child. And so <laughs> so, so I, I didn't know it was a television series until after that. Um, I just really liked the, the whole crazy wackiness of it all. And, um, and then I found out it was a TV series. And at that time, it, by then, it was two TV series. And so right, right. I, started, uh, I started in watching in like, like the uh, first season of Next Generation.
0: So this was a like a full dramatization. Was it like um, was the stage divided? What was the staging for the Romulan ship and the Enterprise?
1: Yeah. So it it was um, there was a scrim in front oh, of okay. we the the audience was actually sitting on the stage so that we were looking down at them. Oh. Um. It was yeah. It was very. It was it was cool. And they so they had a scrim in between the audience and uh, and the actors. And so they would like shut it off you know go fade to black yeah and then it would come up and it would be the different ship
0: okay all right i can see they that they
1: also had like commercial breaks <laughs> they had the two actors <laughs> who'd come out in front of the scrim and and do like they were like doing a coffee commercial i believe okay sure yeah was, <laughs> <laughs> or like uh timex
0: or takes a look and keeps yeah, on ticking it yeah
1: really, it was really funny <laughs> um but yeah so and right I mean, i was like again i was like seven um or one <laughs> and uh and I just really thought that you know it was cool, like the they had the the pointy ears, you know, and so I yeah. I just really remember the pointy ears and being interested that there was like a good pointy ear and the bad pointy ear, <laughs> and, and like that was that was what drew me in. Um, so, so and and then I, you know eventually when I I, I just started watching, um, and I it was. I started watching the original series. It was like only on at like 10 or 11 at night. And I had to convince my mother oh. to let me stay up and, yeah, and right. watch and watch this. And she was like, she tried to watch with me once. Um, and it was the Galileo 7. And after like 15 minutes, she was like, this is boring. <laughs> How, like, why do you want to watch this? Aren't you bored? And I, I'm pretty sure I was bored, but I had to, you know, I was like, I had... Too much pride to admit that I was that I didn't actually enjoy that particular episode.
0: She didn't want to see giant paper mache spears come flying at our heroes.
1: No, she was just like, don't understand. <laughs> um,
0: but,
2: but yeah. So that was that's my origin story. That's
0: certainly a unique one. Liz, what about you?
2: Mine is a very commonplace. My mother had been a Trekkie as a child. She watched the original series with her dad. Her, her father was a very big science fiction fan. He died before I was born, but I feel like we have that in common. And wow. uh, when Next Generation came along, my parents were renting the videos. And so it was on around the house. And I resisted for a couple of years and then I finally got sucked in.
0: That's an amazing story that it's sort of multi-generational like that. Many guests of a certain age do talk about how it was their parents that got them into it, that they were watching it. And so as a kid, you sort of start watching it. But the fact that it was passed down like that is really neat.
2: Well, my mother was a child of the space program and she was absolutely obsessed with space and science fiction. She wanted to be an astrophysicist, but a teacher told her that girls couldn't do maths. So (laughs) uh, my mother is not actually very good at maths, but that's because she's bad at maths, not because she's a woman. Um,
0: Sure, sure.
2: (laughs) But she has, she watched uh, Star Trek and the original Battlestar Galactica with her father and my father watched Doctor Who and the British, the BBC children's science fiction of the 70s with his mother. So I, I got both sides.
0: Yeah, I guess so. And I, just following you on Twitter, I see that you are sort of doing the same thing yourself, uh, going back, watching old uh, Doctor Who episodes and and whatnot.
2: Oh, yeah. I got into Doctor Who like i watched it as a child and then i became a big fan via the reboot from 2005 and yeah. i just i love classic doctor who i think obviously much of it is terrible and it's so cheap but <laughs> stuff like yeah. stuff like genesis of the daleks i find scarier because it's clearly made with everyday objects lying around a tv studio and it's, yeah. right. In some ways, this terrible story of war and death is more compelling because of it.
0: I uh, they used to run Doctor Who on like public television here when I was a kid. And so it was always that weird thing where a white guy with a fro was running from robots <laughs> with a scarf uh, and I didn't have any really connection to it until, you know, the much maligned uh, Fox movie in the 90s. You know, not being from a Commonwealth country, we just didn't have a uh, really appreciation for it. But that's when I uh, started to get into it. And I'm glad I did.
2: Yeah, I'm very fond of that TV movie. I I think it it tried really hard to bridge the gap between US and British television. And I I think it did some cool things really, really well. And some other things, it tried.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anika, on your blog, Manic Pixie Dust, you've got a section called Pixie Fashion where you provide an analysis of various characters' costumes from different sci-fi properties. How'd you get started doing that?
1: Um... (laughs) You know, I've dressed up my whole life. Like, thats it's been really, you know, my passion since I was young. And I I would dress up my pillows, like I would try out (laughs) outfits on my pillows and, like, do, you know, store display designs on my bed (laughs) to decide, you know, what I was going to wear. Um, So it's just something that I fell into. I I was a a cosplayer. I I am a cosplayer. Sure. Um, But I don't actually have the skills to like make really amazing actual like replicas of the costumes. You yeah. know, Padme Amidala is like my favorite character and her costumes are, we're all, you know, high-end couture. Yeah, right. <laughs> made, right. You know, and I just don't have the skill set to even attempt to start to try to make that. And so I started doing something that I called a ready-to-wear characters, okay. um, which was just sort of going into my closet, or like a goodwill, and seeing what, you know, how I can reproduce the costume yeah. without sewing anything, yeah. <laughs> just just putting it all together, um, and so in order to do that, I needed to really know the costumes, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I started like p- paying more attention to what people wear. Um, yeah. Entirely, and I will. I mean, I, I'm also. I was a theater major, and costuming was my um, technical. Like you had to take a technical side, and I took costuming, and I was terrible at the sewing and construction. Like you have no <laughs> idea how bad I was at this. Yeah, my, I sewed things on completely backwards and, and crazy. <laughs> but I enjoyed the design side of it, and the, yeah, like, the sure. paying attention to what people wear side. So I used like those skills. Um, to look at the costumes and how they're related to the story. And I realized, like, it's a, such an art. Like, I mean, obviously it's an art, but when you start paying attention, like, I did a, a review of the first Avengers movie, and I didn't uh-huh. mean it to become, like, just about the costumes, but I saw so much of the costuming... Like telling the story, like you didn't even need to pay attention to what was being said. You could, you could get the story just by paying attention to the costuming. Interesting. And like, I just, so I just wrote like that, <laughs> um, and I, and so I've just, I just, you know, started um, the first fashion project, quote unquote, that I did was with Deanna Troy because she wears so many non-uniform. Yeah. outfits but is sort of like trying to be like they were her version of uniform and i just thought that that was so interesting it was like why did she make these choices yeah so i went at it from like character perspective as opposed to a technical perspective you know i don't i i include in my you know i research why the actual reasons are and i include that in what i'm saying but what it, the the reason I'm doing it is to say why did the character choose this costume, not why did the actor or or why did the creator or costume designer, why did the television series, but why did the character put this on, okay. and what does it say?
0: Sure, I've always wanted to see an analysis of the admirals' costumes and the and the dress uniforms on Trek shows because they're so always. Many. Changing, yeah, and they they seem to be made with a lot less practicality. And admirals seem to be able to wear like whatever they want. Like Admiral Sati just wears like these like amazing dresses, and that's yeah. fine.
2: She's retired, I think, at that she's point. A,
0: yeah, she's, yeah, she's a, yeah, emeritus. Yeah, Liz, I saw that uh, recently. You've been compiling statistics on Twitter of the demographics of Star Trek tie-in novelists, oh, and as yeah. somebody who. As someone who's had a lot of Trek novel writers on this show, I've been watching the results with interest. What were your general findings on that subject?
2: Uh, Well, it's really interesting how it's changed over the years. Back in the 70s, fully 40%, or maybe even more... Anyway, a considerable proportion of tie-in novelists for TOS in the 70s were women. And I think that's yeah. because so much Trek writing was happening in fanzines that women just had the practice. And then you had a lot of like big-name male writers doing tie-ins as well. But overall, it's about 30% across the board. But until uh, you get to... About 2005, roughly around the time John Ordover leaves Pocket Books, it suddenly drops really dramatically down to 16 or 18% women. And that's even mm. with 100% of the Voyager books being done by Kirsten Buyer. Right. And it was just really shocking to me. I expected about 30%, which is the sort of number you get to that feels a bit equal. You know, you know you could do better, yeah. but you're making... That's sort of the default. And so the fact that the current numbers are so very low, it really shocked me. And out of curiosity, I just ran the numbers the other day on Star Wars tie-ins from 2014 after uh, they ditched the extended universe. Star Wars averages about 30% where I expected, but something really interesting there happens in 2017 where suddenly they move to 40% women and a whole lot of... uh, the The men coming into the line are men of color. So it suddenly becomes okay. much more diverse. And I actually think that if I excluded the choose-your-own-adventure books for younger readers, it would be more like 50% women. And then yeah. I looked at Star Trek in the same period, 2017 to 2019, and that was 80% men?
0: Una McCormick, basically, and that's about it.
2: And Kirsten Beyer, when she has time. Yeah,
0: Sure, sure, yeah. And, She's got a Voyager novel coming out soon.
2: Yeah, I think it's been put back because she's so busy with Discovery and Picard. Yeah. And it's just a real shame to me because I think tie-ins can be such a useful jumping off point for casual fans into science fiction, for younger readers into adult fiction. And just voices have been lost and I don't think they're being replaced.
0: Yeah, and keeping a character like Sarek alive, you know, in in the interregnum between TOS and TNG as well and other characters. Well, um, I look forward to your continuing reportage on that topic.
2: (laughs) I'm going to spend a few weeks trying to figure out sort of the behind the scenes stuff and how the industry works and see if I can draw any conclusions from that. And uh, yeah, a blog post will come eventually. And uh, after that, Simon & Schuster will never, ever want to hear me or publish anything I write. (laughs)
0: Possibly, <laughs> we'll see.
2: <laughs> it's not the way twenty yourself, but uh, chances would slim in that direction anyway. So,
0: well, good luck on that. Uh, Thank you. Well, the two of you, with your powers combined, form the podcast Antimatter Pod. I know you've both been fans, and you've written media criticism for a while. But how did it evolve into a podcast?
2: Uh, so we have this Discord for it's called the Admirals Legion, and it's for Katrina Cornwell fans. Oh. Uh, Annika started it with another friend of ours, Rika. And uh, we just got talking about podcasts in general. And I think Annika has been talking about wanting to do one for a while.
1: Yes, I have. I've, I've, I've wanted to do one, but I, I had trouble finding a partner. Um, and so, I, and so I, I always, I'm constantly bringing it up and saying, I'd really like to have a podcast, <laughs> but I can't do it by myself. Um, and, uh, and it was just sort of daunting to people. Um, either they already had their own or they, um, Everyone were, has one. you know, they're, they're like, maybe I could guess, but I don't want to commit to something, you know? So, uh, sure. but Liz was game. She just jumped in and was like, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm into it. I don't know how to use these things, but I'm going to go find out. And I was like, okay, Uh, I'm going to go buy a microphone. Then we're going to do it.
2: I literally had a microphone. It's kind of amazing. I had a microphone sitting around because a few years ago, another friend of mine and I were going to do a podcast about boarding school fiction and, and, you know, girls' boarding school novels. And I just went out and bought a secondhand snowball and it was great, but I never got to use it. So when Annika said this and I realized she was serious, I was like, this is my time. I'm going to figure out how to do this and a friend of mine luckily produces a uh, an award-winning podcast book who's talking and so I hit her up over brunch for tips and off we went
0: that's amazing now let's roll it back a little bit boarding school fiction <laughs> I, I can't is... even think of like any examples of it's like as like a St. Trinian's that or something very like that Australian or
1: Australian Yeah, this oh, is a Commonwealth Aust- thing. <laughs> okay, all right,
0: all right. <laughs> Well, I can't wait for Fox to make a movie about that so I can get into it.
2: One day. One day.
0: <laughs> uh, why did you guys choose this specific episode, Sarek, to discuss today?
1: Well, sort of like the the secret unknown tagline of our podcast is not a Sarek podcast because we constantly talk about Sarek.
0: Okay, all right.
1: We, we have a lot of feelings and thoughts on on our Vulcan
2: dad. (laughs) I think, you know, the overall content of season two of Discovery really helped. Gave us a lot to talk about in that direction.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, you guys are spoiled for choice as far as uh, having (laughs) Sarek things to see in uh, season two of Discovery.
2: We we really like, well, I certainly really like him as a character, but I also like to make fun of him.
0: (laughs) Okay, all right, hold on to that instinct and we'll just get right into it then. (laughs) Uh, We are talking about the TNG episode, Sarek, the 23rd episode of the third season of TNG. It first aired May 14th of 1990. The teleplay for the episode is by Peter S. Beagle. This is Beagle's only script for the Trek franchise, but he's best known for writing the acclaimed fantasy novel The Last Unicorn in 1968, and he also wrote the screenplay for the 1982 film version uh, by Rankin and Bass. He also wrote the screenplay for the 1978 animated version of The Lord of the Rings, directed by Ralph Bakshi. The story is by Siegel, but it's also from an unpublished story by Mark Cushman and Jake Jacobs. Cushman is the co-writer, along with Susan Osborne, of the Trek reference book series These Are the Voyages, covering three seasons of the original series. Jacobs is an actor and a screenwriter, and along with Cushman, wrote uh, episodes of the television series Bachelor Pad and Channel K. Haven't seen either of those. I should mention as well that the script received an uncredited page one rewrite by Iris even Bear and Ronald D. Moore as Moore pointed out in an AOL chat in 1997. The episode was directed by Les Landau who we've spoken about many many times on this show. He's directed for every post TOS pre-discovery series and has two characters Dr. Landau and Admiral Landau named in his honor in TNG. The start date for the episode is 43917.4 and your assignment antimatter pod crew if you can is to give us a 25-word synopsis of Sarek. Uh,
2: turns out Sarek is the worst. <laughs> oh,
1: that's a little harsh.
2: It's not his fault this time. I think it's it's
1: more uh, Vulcan emotions take over the ship, Captain Picard
2: steps in. Yeah. Your version's better.
0: <laughs> if we plug those two together, I think we get pretty close to 25, so... Here's some interesting facts from our memory banks about this episode. Showrunner Michael Piller and screenwriter Cushman have both talked about the genesis of this episode. Uh, The details seem to be a little fluid, but they mostly compare. Uh, The gist seems to be that the idea was uh, they wanted to pitch a that a high-ranking member of Starfleet or the Federation would be facing the problem of senescence and uh, an analog of senility. Uh, Cushman remembers that Roddenberry initially asked him to write two versions of the script one featuring the character of Sarek and a second focusing on a different original Vulcan character. In the early years of TNG there was a reluctance by Roddenberry and the production staff to make too many connections to the original series but as, as TNG had reached its third year it was decided that it would be appropriate to use the character of Sarek. But that said it was an open season on TOS references, and Iris Stephen Bear noted that even mentioning Spock uh, specifically in this episode was debated heavily by the writing staff. Bear maintained that his push to reference Spock was one of the major dominoes that led to the interconnectedness of our current Star Trek franchise. Oh. Yeah, actually, it was, it's weird to think that at the time they wanted like, nothing really to do with TOS, and now everything <laughs> is uh, connected. You know, there's tie-in novels, there's a pre- prequel series and, um, and films and everything. It's amazing. I guess you have... Uh, I, I was even bear to, uh, to thank for that, in his own words.
2: For among many things. Yeah, yeah, yeah things, he's yes. done a lot. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Michael Piller himself noted the resonance between Sarek in the episode and the real-life circumstances of Gene Roddenberry. Uh, as quoted in the reference book, The Continuing Mission, Pillar said, quote... Here was this great man going into decline, and I immediately felt a very strong connection to the premise of Sarek, because I could see that it really was about the universe that we lived in on a daily basis, end quote. A director, Les Landau, was very effusive in his praise for this episode, saying specifically of Patrick Stewart's performance, quote, if you watch what Patrick did in that scene, it's truly spectacular. I've had many great experiences on the show, but certainly that was one of the best, end quote. It's even more impressive to note that the majority of the scene of Picard's breakdown was captured in one take. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I've, uh, we'll talk about that a little more in, in a little bit. Uh, whether or not references to the original series are a good idea, there's still quite a few in this episode. The planet <laughs> the planet Corridon, which was the subject of Journey to Babel, Sarek's first appearance is mentioned. Sarek introduces Perrin as she who is my wife, which how he introduces Amanda <laughs> in Journey to Babel. Additionally, the scene where Picard succumbs to the intense emotions of Sarek mirrors a similar scene from The Naked Time, where Spock is struggling to contain his emotions under the effect of the Psy Two Thousand. Virus. That scene was also captured in one take, though there was a factor of uh, limited production time involved for that scene in that episode. This is also the first time a mind meld is seen on TNG. It's also the first appearance of Joyce Robinson as Ensign Gates. She would appear as a helmsman in a mostly non-speaking role for an additional 35 episodes on the series. Nice. And speaking of... Actors, let's talk about guest stars on this episode. William Dennis appears as Key Mendrosen. Dennis appeared in several guest roles on TV shows in the late 80s and early 90s. He also holds a PhD in theoretical chemistry. So I guess my uh, parents were right. I shouldn't have switched to theater. I could have finished my med degree and then just gone into acting anyway. But my mistake. Uh, his last screen credit and his only feature film credit is the 1995 movie Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. Rocco Sisto appears in the episode as Sakath. This is Sisto's only Trek credit. He graduated from the Tisch School of Arts in 1977 and appeared in many TV shows and films throughout his career, appearing most recently in 2017 on the CBS series Madam Secretary. He was actually born in Italy, and he played the young version of Junior Soprano on the HBO series. And Joanna Miles plays Perrin in the episode, a role that she would repot... Reprise in the fifth season episode "Unification Part One." Miles studied at the Actors Studio and went on to a career in TV and films spanning five decades. She won two Emmy awards for her portrayal of Laura Wingfield in the 1973 film version of *The Glass Menagerie*. Wow! And Annika, as somebody who was a, a theater a major, studied theater. You must have taken the stage at some point in, in your in your life. Yes. Did you ever uh, were you ever in <laughs> or or uh, working behind the scenes on *Glass Menagerie*?
1: No, but I, I uh, have I did definitely did scenes for various <laughs> classes. That <Yeah>. is a <laughs> <Yeah>. a well used.
0: <laughs> I've never done uh, glass menagerie, but I definitely have a Tom monologue or two uh, in my bag yeah. when I was uh, <laughs> auditioning. And last but most, this episode, of course, features Mark Lennard as Ambassador Sarek. Leonard's first role in the Trek franchise was as the Romulan commander in the first season TOS episode Balance of Terror, as Annika knows. He would also appear as Klingon captain in the first scene of 1979's Star Trek The Motion Picture, making him the first actor in the Trek franchise to portray a Vulcan, a Romulan, and a Klingon. He first appeared as Sarek in the second season TOS episode Journey to Babel, a role that he would reprise in the animated series episode Yesteryear, which we've covered on this podcast. Three feature films, of course, this episode and the fifth season episode of TNG Unification Park One, in which Sarek succumbs to Bandai syndrome. And you guys have mentioned that you your podcast is not a Serik podcast. What <laughs> what is it about Serik that you enjoy so much?
2: Uh, if you could put pos- it in words. Um, I really love stories about relationships between parents and their adult children and the push and pull of that tension and that love. And so they gave me Sarek and Spock. And this was my first, as a kid, this was my first introduction to Sarek and I had never seen Spock. So... I found him incredibly interesting and my parents said he was very important and I was like, yeah, okay, you know, you talk about this other series, <laughs> I guess, but right, right. I found Mark Leonard's performance so compelling that for the first time I wanted to go back and watch the original series.
1: Uh, so I find all Vulcans really fascinating.
0: <laughs> Even Cyborg? Uh. <laughs>
1: Yes, definitely. <laughs> Are you kidding? Okay. He's Just amazing. Just checking. Um, but, but um, and I respect their culture, but I have a, I disagree with 90% of what they believe <laughs> okay, um, sure. in terms of how to deal with your emotions. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I say that I really love Vulcans, but I would be a terrible one, and I, I would—I'd uh, probably be a better Romulan. <laughs> but um, but I think that Sarek is is the most interesting in many ways because he is so very Vulcan and so very determined to be Vulcan, but he also loves humans. Like he is just, especially um, when you see him. In discovery, uh, you know he, he's he's just a, a, you know he's younger and a little bit a little bit more like oh I'm just going to collect all the humans and, and <laughs> I'm going to you know I'm going to figure out how to fix them and and, and everything is going to be great and I'm going to befriend everybody and, and you know spread my Vulcan wisdom as far and wide as possible yeah um and I, like but he's like terrible he's he's terrible (laughs) as a as a person and so you know he's the last person who should be in charge of spreading wisdom across the galaxy right but he thinks that that's his like number one position and he does it from a place of absolute belief like he really and love like he wants to make the universe better
2: he just is completely wrong about how to go about it right i i don't think he's entirely wrong you know you consider his regard for the original Jojo and the friendship that he obviously has with Cornwell. Like he's not a totally terrible person. It's just that as a parent and as a mentor, he fails. (laughs) I think that he, like, I I think we've
1: said this, uh, that if you look at all of Vulcan, like he's the best friend to humans. Like he's the most willing to accept their uh emotional Weirdness? stuff. <laughs> <'Cause>, you know, <laughs> their their humanity, I guess, is the word for it. Yeah. Um, he's the most willing to compromise uh between Vulcan stoicism and human emotionality. But and, and like the Vulcans don't like him for that. You know, mm, he's considered yeah. weird by Vulcan standards because yeah. he has this thing where he thinks the humans can be better and the other Vulcans are like we're just going to you know tell them what to do and and then if they just listen then everything will be fine whereas (laughs) Sirik's like I'm going to teach you
0: He's almost that, he's like a, this is maybe too lofty, but like he's a sort of Promethean character in that way, in that he comes from this very elevated culture of the Vulcans. And of course, the Vulcans and the humans don't really get along as we see in uh, Enterprise. But he's that guy who's like, let's let's give him a chance. Um, I'm not sure if he decided that before or after he married a human woman uh, twice. But (laughs) uh, yeah, he definitely is on humanity's side. I
1: think he definitely had to decide it beforehand. Can, I, like, I don't you know think... he has a, he has like a crush on humanity i think yeah
0: i think so yeah there you go <laughs> Well, Mark Lenard as an actor um, was somebody who I felt uh, never really got his due. Uh, he got his start in acting while serving in Europe in World War II. Uh, he was actually cast in an army production of Volpone that toured Europe. And at, at the end of the war, he received his master's degree in theater and he made his way to Broadway to debut in 1957. And then he moved into TV in 1959 and continued to play in soaps and TV films produced on the East Coast until he moved to Hollywood in 1965, making his feature debut in the biblical epic The Greatest story ever told. Uh, Then, of course, he appeared in Balance of Terror in 1966, and he continued to make TV appearances throughout the 60s and 70s on shows like Mission Impossible, The Wild Wild West, It Takes a Thief, and he was regular on the late 60s western show Here Comes the Brides. He also played the role of General Urko in the TV version of Planet of the Apes. He had a guest role in a two-part episode of Buck Rogers in the 25th century, and he had a small role in the 1977 Woody Allen film Annie Hall, which... I did not remember. I'm going to have to watch that again and <laughs> look for him. Yeah.
2: He was also a voice
0: actor. Uh, he, he led his voice to advertisements for Saab, Zenith Watches, and did narration on PBS, The Learning Channel, and The Discovery Channel. And, of course, he was diagnosed with multiple myeloma in 1995 and died in 1996 at the age of 72, survived by his wife of 36 years, Anne, and their two daughters, Roberta and Catherine.
2: That's, I think that was the first Star Trek death that I was really aware of, and I was so sad.
0: Yeah, I remember vaguely um, when Roddenberry died, and um, people being sad but not really connecting for me, mostly because I was, you know, TNG was in full bloom at that point, and so the show was still going, so apparently it didn't matter that much uh, (laughs) to my uh, undeveloped mind. I remember
1: that Jim Henson died the same week, Mm. or, like, very close, and that overshadowed Roddenberry mm. for me, because I had more of a connection to Muppets. Than,
0: okay, yeah, I can do that. <laughs>
1: like, um, but I think that, I, I, but I do really, really remember, like, that was, a like, again, a week or two week period, and was like, wow, this is really sad, <laughs> like, mm. wh- why are these, you know, and People of of my childhood—it's like I, it was still my childhood, but I, I, I was I was ridiculous, and so people of my childhood, like, responsible for my childhood, are dying. What's going on?
2: You know?
0: so. I rewatched this episode a couple times in preparation for this uh, show, and you know, it features amazing performances. It uh, it's got the return of a classic character, but I couldn't help but being kind of depressed by it. I mean. I felt like when it was over, I couldn't really parse what it was trying to say to the audience. Like, okay, yeah, getting old sucks. We're all going to get old. (laughs) But I couldn't believe that was it. And I'm ashamed to say it wasn't until I started reading some commentaries on it and looking at some of the scholarship about the episode that I learned, oh, it's about Gene Roddenberry. He's Sarek in the episode. Now I understand.
2: Mm -hmm. And I think it's so interesting that he had a part in how this episode was written when he was he must have been aware of his own decline, and I understand he had had many strokes by this point and was taking a back seat on on production. And I wonder if in suggesting that it be about Sarek, he was intentionally positioning this as a farewell to himself, which I I didn't mean to sound so self-serving. I think it's actually a really lovely gesture. Sure. I I think that um, part of what
1: Sarek is doing in the episode is trying to control his own legacy. Like he mm, yeah. has been working on this one thing for 93 years. And so if he can just complete it, then he can say, you know, I, I have accomplished this and it won't you know, failing to accomplish it won't overshadow all the accomplishments he's, he has already done. Mm. So it's, yeah. it's ending on his terms. And I can see a, you know, a creator also wanting to sort of end end on my end on my turns, you know, bring back a legacy character in order to say, this is what Star Trek is, and this is why I made yes. it.
0: I was reading remarks from uh, Michael Peller, uh, someone else who helped shape the Star Trek universe and was taken from us too soon, and he was talking about the uncomfortable parallels in constructing the episode and basically the same thing that you were saying having a creator who is trying to finish this work but also at the same time seeing his faculties and his sort of self-control disappear not only is Sarek trying to land this deal that's taken so long but he's also seeing everything that he's relied on his emotional control and just his view of the world sort of slip away from him.
2: Yeah it made me think of the later Discworld novels after Terry Pratchett's Uh, Alzheimer's was becoming apparent and impacting his work Mm. and yeah I think there are lots and lots of parallels we can draw and I think it's a very real situation and I think that's what TNG when when TNG is at its best this is what it does it takes something very real and personal and gives it to an alien and we can still see the (laughs) humanity of that story.
0: That's a great comparison. I I think the bright side of this situation, um, losing Roddenberry, is that with him stepping away from the production, uh, a lot of the people who were, you know, quote unquote, his people were also departed as well, Mm. like um, embattled showrunner Mari Hurley. So you see a new generation, so to speak, take the helm and the show and the franchise really take off like never before. So I don't know if that makes Michael Pillar. Uh, Picard, <laughs> uh, similar hair, I guess. And yes. <laughs> uh, maybe that makes Maurice Hurley uh, and Drosen, or, or somebody. Uh, I, Iron Steven there is Data, just to continue this. And sure. that means Melinda, Snod- Melinda Snodgrass is Geordie, maybe? I don't know. It's not a perfect one-to-one.
2: No. It's interesting <laughs> that you compare Pillar to Roddenberry in this because I've been watching uh, season two of Voyager, which is his last on Star Trek. Right. And he he was obviously very exhausted and creatively burned out and full of ideas for changing and updating the the format of the series but not quite able yeah. to stick the landings and so yeah knowing knowing when it's time to step back and let the the new generation take over is such a difficult skill to learn
0: yeah I think that that is something that plagued the later years of this period of the franchise um it I can imagine taking something, like I mentioned in the intro, that was a real gamble, like, can we do this, mm. having it be so successful, and then, like Sarek, thinking, well, we brought it here. I, whichever producer or writer I am, have made it this thing. I can't give it to somebody else. I'm just going to have to stick around.
2: I think that happens with, with all showrunners. You know, They come in, and yeah. They're, yeah. they're new, and they're welcomed, and then they get tired. And, and it's so hard to it seems like the entertainment industry has trouble with succession planning for showrunners on big franchises.
0: And his name rhymes with Schmanen Schmaga.
2: I was going to say (laughs) Schmick Schmerman, but yes, (laughs) both these things are true.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, I'm going to plant my flag here, I think, and say that I think TNG season three might be the show's best season. There's better individual episodes. There are hours that give particular characters better moments in development. But this is just solid Star Trek over the course of pretty much the entire season. There's a few all-time classic episodes. I think the third season is where the maturity of the show really begins to emerge.
2: I agree. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's where, you know, the characters have settled into themselves, the writers are confident telling different types of stories, and, and, you know, Mm. even the Aliens of the Week stories are really, really strong.
0: I noted that, I think I read on Memory Alpha that um, this is a uh, a season of kidnappings. I think there's like eight separate (laughs) characters who are all kidnapped or beamed away or or, uh, restrained by somebody else. I'm not sure what that means.
2: That's on (laughs) (laughs) Wharf.
0: Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Get up off your butt.
1: You know what? One of my notes on this episode is, Worf is bad at his job.
0: <laughs> he he does hold two men apart just with his hands, like during a, during that bar fight.
1: Yeah, but he didn't notice that there was problems to begin with.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Yeah.
1: Deanna and Will are all like, something's wrong here. And like, I haven't noticed. Like, that's literally
2: his line. Maybe, yeah, is, well. <laughs> I haven't noticed. Maybe because good he's job, a Klingon, this, this constant low-level hostility, he's like, oh, uh, finally everyone's being normal. Thank you. This is what I'm used right. to in Russia.
0: <laughs> yeah, Right, yeah. <laughs> There's no actual blood on the wall, so how bad can it be? Yeah, right, yeah. Right. There's a few episodes that aren't so good in this season. I love that Sarek comes right after The Most Toys, which is another Stone Cold classic, and then it's immediately followed by Menage Troy, Womp Womp.
1: Yeah. What <laughs> great fashion.
0: But it's that sort of thing where and you see this a lot in network TV, but I think really in a lot of TNG um, that idea of having the back nine. Uh, of the, of the uh, season, like the episodes that are not not ne- necessarily um, planned to be a part of the initial first part of the season. Mm. And I think that's where they kind of put either the bad ones or the ones that they are taking chances on. And so you get things mm-hmm. like like the inner light was one of those, you know, yes. um, and I think this is an example of one that maybe they weren't sure about. Maybe it took um, a little bit more to put it together, but was definitely worth uh, what they what they ended up with.
2: I was struck watching it yesterday how simple Sarak is as an episode. Yeah. You know, we don't, the stakes, yeah. we don't really have a sense there's of the really stakes. There's not really like a B story
1: or anything. No. It's all, it's all A story. No. <laughs> like there's little vignettes of other plots like Geordie and Wes's date. Like Wes's date is this weird subplot, yeah. Um, but but it's not like you know we never actually even see the girl, so it's not like it's an important plot line. It's not a B story. It's just this extra subplot to A. And I like right.
0: to say, and why, and why Wesley, cast somebody?
2: Yeah, Jordy and Wesley talking about women is so uncomfortable.
0: Oh boy, yeah.
2: <laughs> why do yeah, they let that I mean... happen?
1: Yeah, can you imagine what their reputation is that they are both sort of.
2: Weirdly half self aware and half oblivious. I assume yeah. that the I was, women well, that's of a great description. Th- th- there's probably like <laughs> a, a, a secret group chat where the women of the Enterprise are like, Jordy asked me out. And someone else is like, Yeah, Wesley has been staring at me. And I think he's trying to work up the courage. Can we like workshop ways to let him down easy?
0: <laughs> the dating pool is getting smaller and smaller here on the, yeah. uh, on the USS Enterprise.
2: Also, what kind of ensign dates a 17 year old?
0: yeah so I'm trying to figure out how old he's supposed to be at this point like he's probably 16 or 17 right
2: I would have said 17 he's
1: a year or two out of the academy I feel like he started at 14 right yeah Yeah. and this is season three so yeah
0: Yeah, it's a little weird and Jordy's comments on such are a little weird Um, I'm trying to remember remember the episode where Jordy gets like his mental upgrade I can't remember exactly what it is <laughs> but up to a certain point he's like striking out with christy and the coco no-nos and then at some point i can't remember the plot but he gets like a thing it's and a, then he's like well I f- i'm more confident now i
2: think it's a barclay episode, yeah 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 isn't it? but yes
0: the, oh the barclay one
2: i think so but i, remember. I do remember
1: him getting his upgrade yeah. okay. and then and like something happens to him and then it it's not taken away mm. right right yeah so in, in theory, he is now confident forever, but is, <laughs> does he really improve?
0: Yeah, well, you know, I, he does uh, rightfully get taken down for his uh, holodeck uh, exploits. Aww.
2: In a season yeah, see, of holodeck
0: he... exploits, because this is Booby Trap and uh, uh, Hollow Pursuits is this
1: season. Wesley, like, references yeah. Geordi falling in love that... with the hologram, so it's like what is the scuttlebutt on this? Like, how many people know everyone happened? And why are we not creeped out? Like, well,
2: why I think the women of the ship are creeped out.
1: In <laughs> some kind of
2: training or like... Well, you have
0: to imagine that the holodeck is start. used for that purpose. I, is Jordy not using it correctly for that purpose somehow?
2: <laughs> he needs to get tips from Raka.
0: Yeah. Uh, do whatever you want, but just no named characters here. Mm, no, no, no real people. Yeah. Historical's okay. If you want to go on a date with Eleanor Roosevelt, that's fine.
2: And who wouldn't? I, okay, my new OTP is Geordie LaForge and Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> Eleanor. But the thing, what bugs me is that Geordie, when he's not being creepy around women, is such a fun, decent character. And I really hate yeah. that he's given these issues with women when it doesn't really fit his personality otherwise. It just... And, and yeah. then you have LeVar Burton, who is so such a decent person and so good-looking. And, and and it just feels like they're doing him a disservice. They've put this thing over his face so you can't see his eyes and given him a personality that is basically a creepy. Why would you do that <laughs> to your, your most high-profile actor at the time the series starts?
0: And not let him grow a beard. Are you a pro Jody beard or anti Jody beard?
2: I don't really have strong feelings. I don't think we saw enough okay. of the beard to for me to form yeah. a, a, an opinion. I don't know. I think it would
1: make him more creepy. Okay, I
2: don't know. Right. Is it a neck beard or is it a
1: goatee? As, as an aesthetic.
0: Not the best. Like,
1: I know that they're trying to be
2: awkward, but he is not socially awkward. He is creepy. That's the thing. He, he is very at ease with other social situations.
0: But yeah, you bring up romance or dating and uh, he almost drowns Wesley in that hot tub.
2: Well, you know, Beverly hits him. It's, it's a rough week for Wesley.
0: <laughs> that, yeah, it is true. <laughs>
2: can
1: I just say that the fact that the hot tub is like rainbow colored is really yeah. amazing. <laughs> I know.
0: it's full of Kool-Aid like, or something. Yeah, the
1: rainbow slime pit. Hmm. I just, I, like, I want to know more about these aliens.
0: I do that too. They, I mean, it's...
1: they live <laughs> in a rainbow slime pit. Like, what do they look like? <laughs>
0: It's clear that it's a, you know, it's a money-saving episode, mm. so we're never going to see them. But I did want a little more concession to their strangeness. Like once Sarek is all fixed up and he's going to go negotiate this final thing, have him just come out of the room just covered in red slime. And he's like, <laughs> it went great. <laughs> Thumbs <laughs>
2: Mission up. Mission
0: accomplished.
2: I kind of wish that this had been the episode that introduced the Cardassians because mm. as much as I love the weirdness implied of the implicit weirdness of the Ligarans. I think the stakes would have been much higher if this was, you know, the treaty to officially end the war with Cardassia and then it has these long-term effects of the Marquis and everything else afterwards. And if that's something that Sarek had a hand in, that almost, you know... uh, it's a terrible legacy, but I like the idea of him having played a part to shape the future of the Federation.
1: You Certainly. just want to make Sarek even more the worst. No, no,
2: I just think that <laughs> the emotional impact of this episode would have been even greater if we had seen the long-term impact of the treaty that Sarik yeah. negotiated.
1: I, I do agree that if it wasn't a one-off alien that we never even see, mm. as you say, it would have more impact.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, especially when you consider that, that this is his last, you know, so this is going to be like the last bit in, his, his, in the history books for him.
2: Officially, yeah. yes, so but my headcanon is his, that he had a... His legacy sentence. Yes. I do headcanon that he had a part in the negotiation of the treaty with, the Cardassi- with Cardassia and maybe gave away too much. It's a, okay. it's a very Interesting. bad trade. Because, because of Bendai syndrome? <laughs> because of the. Well, yeah, right. The card was busy that
1: week.
0: <laughs> yeah right you okay. couldn't use him for that we did i mean it took 25 years for them to sort of tell us what happened with the koridan uh negotiations yeah. uh, after journey to That's Babel. True. so maybe in the picard series we'll get uh we'll get the answer to what happened with these guys
2: you know they probably finally have the budget to do justice to the slime living lagarans <laughs> Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right, you hear that? Bring the bring the Lagarans in for sure.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's my new ultimatum. If they don't bring back the Lagarans, I will stop watching.
0: I uh well, despite us not seeing the Lagarans, I'm sure they saved some money on this episode and it's just like, you know, there's a what I yeah. think is interesting is that the the strength of this episode and the faith that the production had in it to make it basically a radio play. I mean, it's 45 minutes of talking punctuated by Mm. a brawl intent forward and then a couple scenes with the hot tub with Kool-Aid and... It all rests on the performances of the leads and the focus on this storied character in Crisis, which is amazing. The The entire fourth act is basically just Picard and Sarek. It's just that scene between them where he finally confronts him.
2: Yes. Yes. It's extraordinary. And and you, you said that it could be a radio play. I was actually drawing on my iPad as I watched it yesterday and only <laughs> occasionally looking up at the TV. And I've seen this episode a lot, so I know what's happening on screen. <laughs> but yeah. It's it's just so vivid without even without the visuals.
1: I will say though, there is the one scene in the middle, the concert, that is entirely yes. non-verbal. There's just Yes and, and all of the movement on the screen is timed exactly to the music. And I just think yes. that's so beautiful. <laughs> like I was like I really appreciate the direction of this scene and how the whole story is told just through the different expressions on Sarek and Sacketh and Deanna and Picard and you know they they tell yeah. the story as the mm. you know the melody is playing and it's just
2: it's really beautiful so it that
1: could Perrin. be part of the uh...
2: yes yes uh, Perrin plays a big part in that scene too and I think yeah. she's overshadowed as a character by Amanda who we know so much more about but I find Perrin really interesting because here is this woman who another human woman who has married a Vulcan and who has apparently embraced many things about the Vulcan way of life and she's also you know his second wife after his famous first wife and the stepmother to Spock who we learn in Unification she doesn't necessarily like I just think her story must be so fascinating yeah
0: yeah, it's. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts uh, on the apparent shifting of the Vulcan culture from being a matriarchal society that we see in Amok time to this is the woman who is my wife, Mrs. Sarek.
2: Yeah, and uh, it's, it's just, I think that's partly an effect of having so many different writers on TOS and not necessarily talking to each other and DC Fontana just sort of pulling all the strings together behind the scenes.
0: <laughs> yeah, right, right.
2: And I think you know, Vulcans are very complicated, and they have millions of years of history, and so yeah, they have remnants of the times that they were matriarchal. They have remnants of the times that they would get naked and rub each other with oil and call that a party. <laughs> you know, uh, they've got a lot going on. Uh, and they all, in
1: you know, Enterprise. We are introduced to young T'Pol, and she's sort of like a rebel. So, so yeah. it's you know, it's I kind of like the idea that Pao took power. It was like I'm in charge now, guys. <laughs> yeah.
0: The Kishara changed a lot of things up for Vulcan Society, but it gave him a chance to sort of play around in, in the early years though. The um the one thing the one thing that I have to say about that uh concert scene, which is great, and of course it wouldn't be TNG if there wasn't a spontaneous string quartet <laughs> showing up, but
2: so TNG.
0: Yeah, when we get that shot of the tear though, did that seem kind of fake to anybody else? I think they used a still of Mark L- Leonard's face and then they like <laughs> animated or superimposed a tear going down. I mean maybe they maybe they couldn't get it on the day. Um Patrick Stewart though has those perfect dual tears in his scene uh w- you know when he is experiencing all those emotions and it's all the more incredible when you know it was done in yeah. one shot.
2: Ah, I I didn't realize that, but that just blows me away even more. And Maybe Mark Lenard can't cry on cue and that's why he's so good at playing Vulcan.
0: <laughs> he did I, and he had a lot of makeup on too so maybe it, you know they were worried that it would run or something yeah. like that. It's the perils of HD. Another HD thing that I caught in this episode is something is wrong with Jonathan Frake's finger. If you look at the f- the index finger on his right hand in this episode, he has like a flesh colored like ace bandage on it for the entire episode and then he is in all of his scenes, like sitting down and then kind of like, you know, they don't have any pockets in their uniforms, but like he's sort of putting his hand behind him or he's sort of dropping his right shoulder down. And I, all my research, I couldn't find out what happened to Jonathan Frakes' finger that week.
2: Do you think huh. if we tweeted him and asked, he'd remember?
0: I don't know. Um, I, I plan on asking him if I, mm. if I meet him sometime soon.
2: Yeah. So did you like injure your finger in 1990?
0: <laughs> yeah. Were you mountain biking or something like that? Mm. Comes right back to it.
2: I, I will admit to
1: being distracted in the concert scene by the clothing on the extras. They oh, were oh. mostly uniforms. There was, but there were these.
0: There were some civvies. Yeah, yeah, there were these clothes. two
1: guys that I was like, they went down to like the Gap and bought these clothes and put them on them. <laughs> these are not 24th century clothes. These are 99, like, like, peak 90s gap clothes. <laughs> yeah, the
0: sharp, sharp lapel. Yeah, it was, was um, just, like structure, probably.
1: It was just very, and it was distracting. I was like, you know, just throw some crazy, you know, cloak on them or something. Do something to make this look slightly less like it is what it you is. You and your,
0: sla- your pleated slats, <laughs> like was, yeah.
1: Maybe, maybe they're the caterers and they're just like, we need more people. Sit down.
0: Yeah, right, yeah. Put that uh, duct tape down and get up here. Yeah. Uh Perrin has these like huge jewels on her headdress and her necklace. I'm sure they're paste, but they must have been like super heavy.
2: I have to think that Perrin foreshadowed uh Amidala's, you know, the red royal gown oh, in Fanon yeah. Menace because there are certain similarities there. There are definitely. I can see
0: that. Amadala is so elegant though, whereas Perrin has She's got a pretty sweet wimple. She's got like a space nun thing going on.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's cool. Uh, Like she's hiding her ears so people don't see that they're not pointy. Even though, honey, you're a redhead. They're going to notice that you're not Vulcan.
0: And you don't have a bowl cut. Yeah.
2: She's, I was just, um,
1: having just recently seen Journey to Babel and Amanda's clothes. I was sort of disappointed in parents, I have to say. She is yeah. <laughs> she's very Vulcan. She's like wearing basically the same outfit as Sarek is just in hot pink because she's a girl, I guess. Lady. And so yes. so she has to be in in hot pink. But other than that I um, mean it was really like the hot pink with the the turquoise and the sort of yellow gold. I was like, oh, she kind of looks like a My Little Pony, you know, where like you got this really, I like it. I like it. But it's very, I'm putting on on my Vulcan clothes and the only thing that I'm giving yeah. to my humanity is this color. Um, whereas yeah. Amanda's clothes were just ridiculous. <laughs> and she was just like, I, you know, maybe that's what Vulcans wear. But I'm going to guess that they do not go around <laughs> wearing feather boas, like it's
2: just just nothing <laughs> on Vulcan. I like that difference though, because I think it highlights the difference between Perrin and Amanda's personalities. Where you know Amanda hmm. seems like a character who enjoys fashion for the sake of it a- and loves playing with color and texture. And she's the wife of the Vulcan ambassador, and she can turn up wearing whatever she wants. She can wear her <laughs> opera gloves to the beach, and no one can stop her. Whereas Perrin is much more. State. embracing. Yeah, she's embracing a Vulcan culture. Yeah. She is older than Amanda when we see her f- first yeah. a- a- and married to a much older man. Yeah. And I think I think she has a different different perspective on Vulcans.
0: Parent's ears get cold easy, so.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Also, she hasn't raised a half Vulcan child, which I think would ch- would change her attitude. Mm-mm. Considerably,
0: uh, Patrick Stewart gets a lot of praise for his work in this episode, deservedly so. I think his scenes are a little more YouTubeable than Mark Lennard's, but I think Mark Lennard's are right up there with him. I mean, yes. that scene where he, Picard confronts him, and he basically says, okay, look, I'm Mr. Logic Man, give me your argument, and then Picard does, and he's fighting him and himself the entire mm. way through is just enthralling.
2: And logic!
1: Logic! And, and we yes. need to yes. see... Mark Leonard's performance in that scene in order to see it in Picard's scene later. Like, it has yes. to be Sarek's emotions and not Picard's emotions that Patrick's mm. story is portraying. And so we need to see Sarek losing control in order to get the full impact of that. And I think that both of them do an amazing job at conveying that.
0: Picard has a lot of... He's had a lot of crazy experiences over the course of his career, but this is the episode where we see him mind meld with Sarek. And I think we're led to understand that he will always carry a part of him as you do when you mm. mind meld with somebody. Then later on, he goes and lives an entire life as Cayman in the inner light. So he, there's like three or four people in him at this point. <laughs> like he's lived like hundreds of years of experience. So that's kind of like, uh, that's also kind of cheating. The but yeah. there is of course the Borg as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: Picard and identity is such an interesting issue that I, don't think was necessarily explored much in the show. The trauma was discussed, but the the, the idea that he has had all these experiences and all these memories hasn't really yeah. been taken up. And I kind of hope that's one of the things that Star Trek Picard addresses.
0: Me too. I, I'd have to assume that you guys are uh, looking forward to and are excited about Star Absolutely. Trek Picard. Yeah, <laughs> Other than uh, seeing the effects of, you know, the dings uh, on, on his uh, psyche of his long service. Mm. Uh, is there anything else you guys are looking for out of that show?
2: I really want you characters to fall in love with and I want to see the next, yeah. the next phase for the Federation and I want to see the old characters that I already love but I'm really here yeah. for the new people. And Seven.
1: I'm really excited for the Borg stuff and how it will relate to identity questions because that's something I'm hugely interested in. Um, mm. And uh, also, like, I can tell already that this is going to be a team is family show, and I, l- I love that. <laughs> so yeah. I'm I'm 100% ready to watch this team become a family as as we go through whatever horrible, probably, things they, they have to deal <laughs> with. Um, I'm
2: looking forward to Picard's old family, you know, these seasoned professionals who were chosen for the Enterprise D because they were the best of the best come face to face with his new ragged group of misfits and weirdos. <laughs>
0: well, as we come to the end here, is there anything that we missed? Anything that you guys have left unsaid about this episode?
1: I have a very important Two things. question. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You, can, you want me to go first? Okay. I have a Please, very, because yours might be one of mine. Very important question for both of you. Do you think yes. that Perrin and Picard were flirty? Ah. Uh, because I have felt that there was some kind of little weird spark between them, like literally since I saw this episode in the 90s. Um, and it's always been in the back of my head is, yeah, Picard definitely no, had a thing it. for Sarek's wife. <laughs> I
2: think it's <laughs> one of things where... played along. Mm. It's
1: like, but you is know... That...
2: Is that that she is attracted to him or is that that she is a lady who is being polite? Because I think Picard is definitely drawn to Perrin and if she wasn't married would be like, hey, you want to get dinner and listen to a string quartet? But (laughs) I don't know that Perrin necessarily reciprocates Mm. Yeah, I think that's fair.
0: The real question is, do you see um, shades of that when they see each other again in unification?
1: I remember. Yes, that, definitely. I definitely remember it being like, oh, they are still they're they're at it again though. <laughs> like, okay. There, there was just again in my head. It was just there was something really, really there. Just you know, not nothing untoward.
0: Just, Nothing improper, yeah.
1: Oh, you know, they're, they're on the same wavelength. And I sort of, like, get that. I can see that someone who marries a Vulcan and someone who is one of the more restrained characters in the show, um, but who loves old stuff and adventure, um, like, I can see yeah. how they would
2: gel. Um, and I'm, she's a redhead with cheekbones, so she's his <laughs> <laughs> Yes.
0: Yeah, sure. I'm wondering if, like, I'm trying to think of what the first episode is that we really see Picard begin to uh, come into his own as, like, a romantic lead himself. Um, we do get Captain's Holiday this season. Uh, there's a yes. little kissy face, you know, in holodeck episodes and stuff, but maybe this is the first season where we start to see that side of Picard more. Yeah,
1: he's allowed to sort of let yeah. out a little. That happened with Janeway, like, too. Like, it took yeah. It yeah. took a few years before she was allowed to be
2: flirty in any way. Mm. He was certainly, he had chemistry with Captain Levois, but she was the ex he was angry with, or <laughs> still resented. So Right. Mm. Right. But also, cheekbones. <laughs>
0: yep, redhead Red with cheekbones. Redhead with cheekbones. Nailed it. Yes.
2: <laughs> My questions from this episode, one is... Who do we think the son whose wedding atten- uh, Picard attended was?
0: Oh boy! Well, you know, I think there is a novel um, by somebody. Maybe yeah, um, I've read it. Oh, you have? Okay, yeah. Where he? <laughs> I don't remember. It's the author, Savick. But
1: yeah, he marries Savick. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of
2: creepy, okay. <laughs>
1: Uh-oh.
2: I mean, I, I kind of sh- can see it, but it's 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 a bit weird. I know they had sex and all, but there were circumstances.
0: That's, yeah, there were pressing, uh, urgent circumstances. Um, I, mm. God, I would love to headcanon that it's Cybok. And then I'm trying to think of, like, who Cybok was <laughs> marrying. Like, who would he marry?
2: Caitlin oh. Dahl, some happy cult member?
0: <laughs> yeah, It didn't say one person. He could be marrying <gasps> a whole group of people. Yeah, it could have been yeah. a mass a mass ceremony.
2: Yeah, Cybok <laughs> seems like the kind of guy who would go for a mass wedding. <laughs> But the other possibility is that Sarek has just adopted many, many more children. Yeah. yeah. I like Who knows how many weddings he attends every year.
0: These episodes are, are classic and they're enshrined in all of our memories, but if I could go back and just ADR Michael, yeah. <laughs> Picard saying Michael during that montage, uh, it would be complete.
1: Yep. Yes. I've said that multiple times. It, I, and, <laughs> I, and as I was watching it this time, you know, it's such an amazing performance. And, you know, you're, you're saying that it was uh, mostly one take. Like, I believe that. I think that, I don't know if you could get this performance in multiple takes, you know? Like, I feel like mm. he, yeah. he
2: threw himself into it. and yeah. It's so raw. Yeah, it's, it's almost difficult to watch. It feels like too much. Yeah. And, and I feel like more than one take, there would have been a temptation to pull back.
0: And it's such, it's, such the strength of Patrick Stewart as an actor and also of somebody like Mark Leonard, in that they can put on these goofy costumes and pajamas and like be talking about mind melts and stuff, but just the the certainty and the realness that they bring to it is just really um, you know, what they contribute to the franchise. It's really their strength.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think you see with other space opera series and I, I'm not going to name names but I'm thinking of Babylon 5 where you give lesser actors that kind of work and it falls flat and you know not to criticise the actors of Babylon 5 most of them are brilliant but every now and then you get someone who isn't quite strong enough isn't quite brave enough to, to sell it the way Patrick Stewart does Yeah, and yeah he, he's not one of a kind quite but he's pretty rare
0: I'll say it, Harry Kim. <laughs> Everything, <laughs> every situation they put uh, Garrett Wang in, I, I just don't, uh, I don't believe it.
2: Yeah, I feel like that was a deliberate underwriting of the character. And, you know, he was always being told, don't act too much. You don't want to draw oh. attention away from the aliens. Okay. So, Well, yeah. bad advice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think he's untalented. I just don't think he ever got the opportunity to stretch his wings the way other actors did.
0: Well, fair enough. I apologize, mm. Mr. Wang. Well, uh, let's talk my space dad can beat up your space dad. Who's your favorite <laughs> captain and why?
1: Janeway. Uh, <laughs> sorry.
0: Space mom, Janeway.
1: I don't know how to choose. is definitely okay. my favorite captain. <laughs> sure. Um, I would say why? Because Voyager's my show. Of, yeah. of all the shows, um, I fit into that crew best. Um, I feel like Janeway <laughs> would adopt me and, and uh, bring me into her crazy crew of misfits, and uh, I would fit in there. I would never make it on the Enterprise. Um, and I probably wouldn't be in Starfleet on uh, Deep Space Nine. I wouldn't be a part of Ops or anything. I'd be like a Dabo girl or something. I don't know. So I don't know if I would, if I would be a part of Adventures. Um, but on Voyager, I'd be important because everybody on Voyager is important. Um, and yeah, and uh, Janeway is really the one who, you know, she created that idea that everyone is important. She her yeah. Her collection of people that she uh, she brings in and makes sure that everybody is in their place. And even when she finds out that she's missed a few people, she like goes out of her way to, to find them a, a place too.
0: Yeah, I always thought that Garrick must have had a Bajoran girl like helping him hem pants or something. He couldn't be doing all that work by himself.
2: Yeah, I could definitely. Well, we know Annika couldn't do that job. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if I had instruments, though.
0: Right. Future sewing instruments. Future stuff.
1: If I just had to program something, maybe it would be okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But I could do his shop windows.
0: Well, now that we've reached the end of the show, you will both receive a commission and the rank of ensign in our Starfleet. What department on the ship do you work in?
2: Oh, I would be in command, but I wouldn't be, like, serving on a starship. I would be the admin assistant to an admiral. I'd be the one going, oh, we've just had a report from the Enterprise. I know they only launched yesterday, but Captain Picard says they've run into an omnipotent being that's putting humanity on trial. Yeah. Do you <laughs> want to deal with that? And then I would die when my boss turns evil. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um... I guess I will uh, go for a counselor because that's my mm. that's where. <laughs> if I got to choose what I wanted to do and be, sure. I would choose counselor. So I'm gonna go with that sure. one.
0: Troy must also have other people on her staff that we never she see. She must.
1: Yeah. Oh my yeah. goodness. Uh, yeah. Uh, this is a this is another episode where I sat and you know we just see her for a moment speaking with with Beverly in sort of a yeah. counseling type you know she's her friend but it was also very. it had this like air they were in session we're in session and um and I was like wow can you imagine the week that that Troy had with all this stuff going on and then like you know during and then after it would it probably stretched out into months just dealing with yeah yeah, I was taken over by intense Vulcan emotions and it it screwed up my relationship
0: yeah. Well, yeah. Vulcan mind waves no, if there's a huge brawl in the uh, 10 forward, then there's going to be disciplinary actions. And I'm sure part of the uh, disciplinary, um, uh, d- the punishment is for you to like have to go to counseling and stuff like that. So Troy's schedule is going to be full for, for months. Yeah.
2: Yeah. There has to be other counselors. Like one person can't manage a thousand people.
0: Just to do onboarding and insurance. Yeah, yeah,
2: like (laughs) or nine hundred and ninety-nine people and data.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. It's not like (laughs)
2: data doesn't need counseling. (laughs) Just saying, he needs it more than anyone. Exactly. (laughs) He's
0: got a cat. He's fine.
2: Ah, therapy cat, yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Ensigns, Dane, and Barr, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at, at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online?
2: Our podcast can be found at antimatterpod, all one word, com, or on Twitter, same username, and... I can be found on Twitter at underscore Lizbar, that's L I Z B A R R, and squiddishly.net, where I mostly blog about Voyager.
1: <laughs> awesome. And I'm uh, Manic Pixie Dane on Twitter and Pixie Dane most other places, other social medias. Um, but if you go to ManicPixieDust.com, then you there's links to everywhere as well as all of my various content.
0: Well, thanks again for joining me.
1: Thank you for having us. Yes, this is wonderful. Really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Me too. We are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed.